situation. He took a pinch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the Jeremy's Bomb Pro castration of the major league baseball managers we know it ask me about my What's going on, everybody? Congratulations or pre-congratulations go out there to Miguel Cabrera, who's gonna become the sixth player in Major League Baseball history to have both 500 home runs and 3,000 hits. And he basically let it be known how much he really cares about that. But it's it's something that listen, is going to rank you as one of the greatest baseball players of all time, so he deserves the accolades, and I get it. Listen, he wants to win. He wants his Tigers team that he's part of at this stage of his career, not the centripetal force or the the means of the team being good or bad, just a veteran player kind of playing out the last string of his career, the great contract that he earned from the great play that he had, for a couple decades, and you know, he I think he wants to win, and I think that's the most important thing to him. And it's great to actually hear him say that when reporters are saying, "Hey, you're sitting back thinking any about any nostalgia, the great career that you had." Now he he wants to go out there and help his team win. I don't think he cares about how many hits he has, but he's in his esteemed company there with Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Eddie Murray and Albert Pujols and Alex Rodriguez. All of them amongst the greatest offensive position players to ever play in baseball history. So Miguel Cabrera deserves some credit and accolades for that. Now the Brooklyn Nets are in a situation where they're going to have a chance to play a couple games at home against the Boston Celtics. Maybe they go out there and win them. All of a sudden it could be a different series. But you're looking at the Nets, and I'm making a very important comparison to another, to a national uh, football team that gets a lot of attention too. And I'm going to get to it in a little bit, but my concern with the Nets is that there's been so much emphasis on Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Now, if you are an apologist for the Brooklyn Nets, maybe you're a Brooklyn Nets fan and you want to, you want to think that the future is great. And you're still behind the decision that was made to bring in KD and bring in Kyrie, who, by the way, individually, are really two of the greatest basketball players that we've ever seen in the history of the sport. And I could get into the discussion, and I've done it before on the PBS. We've spoken about the best players to ever play in the NBA. But if you're going to do the best players to ever play in the NBA, you got to do it right. you got to go back to the 1950s and honor the George Mikans of the world. You have to give Larry Bird his legitimate place within, you know, the top five or seven. You know, Michael Jordan and Bill Russell. And you're going to forget about Elgin Baylor and Jerry West, but they need to be in the discussion too. So Kevin Durant, you know where he ranks. He's certainly one of the greatest players. Maybe he's somewhere in the top 15. Kyrie is probably... I don't know, you get close to 20. Uh, it's hard to name maybe 25 impact players, but the more players that come out, you think of a Tim Duncan, you certainly think of a Magic Johnson, uh, a lot of really dominant players that played in the NBA, top scores like an Allen Iverson. And I think Iverson is probably the best comp 
if you're if you're looking at Kyrie Irving in regards to just being a pure dominant scorer. That's what Kyrie does. He he doesn't help you much with defense. He is not that pure point guard where he's going to bring the ball up, you know, in situations that he's been asked to do that that really hasn't been Kyrie at his best. And you'll wonder if the Nets as they get set for next year, maybe they bring in a true point guard and let Kyrie and KD just be the scorers that that they are. You know, Kevin Durant could do other things. Sure, he could play a little point if you need him to, but you know he's going to bring the ball up to the basket and he's going to score. He's going to hit, you know, me, you know, medium range shots from all over. He can hit a three. He'll take the ball to the basket and get fouled. The Brooklyn Nets, for the fact that they have Kyrie and KD, are in a great position and should be an expected playoff team and should be in the mix to win an NBA championship year in and year out. But now, as they're down two games to zero to the Boston Celtics, the discussion is going to be, is Durant and Irving working in Brooklyn? And if it doesn't, how much of a failure is it? And at one point, do you look at Durant and Irving and say, eh, they need a little bit of their share of the blame for what's going on. And my comparison that I want to make it to is, some people may say apples and oranges, but I look at the Dallas Cowboys in the National Football League. They have a lot of what the Nets have. A path to the playoffs. Now listen, this past season couldn't have worked out probably any worse for the Brooklyn Nets. Kyrie wasn't allowed to play home games for the majority of the season. Durant missed, what, 30, 35 games. James Harden, who they thought was going to be part of their big three, didn't want to play there. He was disgruntled. They shipped him out. They got Ben Simmons back, who has not played a game for them. So all these things considered, the Nets still managed to grab the seventh seed in the Eastern Conference playoffs. So I look at them, and this is year three where these two players have been together. Durant was hurt the first season. You know, they've had injury issues, whether it's Kyrie or Durant not being on the court at the same time. The bottom line is they lost in the first round the first year. They lost in the second round in year two. And this year, if they lose to the Boston Celtics, who, by the way, from a C perspective, are the better team. And, and it, I always find it hilarious as we look at it. And you heard me on my last show, if you did, talking about the disrespect that's given to teams that have the top seed. We like to play around and believe that these seeds are wrong for some reason. And a team that has a 7 or an 8 seed has got an easy chance to knock out a 1 or 2 seed. Listen, the Brooklyn Nets might be that exception to the rule. They might be that really good team that had a series of Unfortunate things happened to him with Kyrie not being allowed to play, with Durant being hurt, the whole Harden situation, and maybe that was an underseeded team for the amount of talent that they have. And they've played the Boston Celtics well. They're set up to have a rough matchup. They're not the two seed playing the seventh seed. So they're they're not gonna have a cakewalk to get to the second round of the playoffs. They're going to have to make this into a series. And hey, there's a chance that they may be able to do that. But let's say it doesn't work out this year. Let's say we're talking about three years of the Brooklyn Nets 
not really getting to the promised land with the promise being KD and Kyrie, two players that have won championships before, Durant's two with the Golden State Warriors and Kyrie's in 2016 with the Cleveland Cavaliers. And where are they at going into next year? And what do you start thinking about the Brooklyn Nets with the two of them here? Well, maybe you, you try to blame whoever is not KD and Kyrie. You already scapegoated a coach, a very good coach in Kenny Atkinson, who shouldn't have lost his job, but you understand that that's part of the nature of having a job as an NBA head coach. It's a player's league. The players rule. Somebody like a Frank Vogel, who's a very good coach, can be pushed out because the stars may not align with him. That's what happened with Kenny Atkinson. But you can't go out there and do the same thing with Steve Nash. You can't say, oh, well, Kenny Atkinson didn't work, so now it's all Steve Nash's fault, and whoever else becomes the next head coach of the Brooklyn Nets, they're going to be the easy scapegoat. You can blame James Harden. Well, James Harden isn't there anymore. This playoff run, James Harden's got nothing to do with. You know, they got Andre Drummond, they got Seth Curry, and, of course, Ben Simmons, who may or may not play here. Now, if Ben Simmons gets into a game or so and the Nets get eliminated, I think it'll be very short-sighted and very out of touch. If you wanted to blame Ben Simmons for anything that doesn't go right for the Nets, he hasn't played a game for them. He forced his way out of Philadelphia. If you want to blame him for things that may not go right with the Philadelphia 76ers, who, by the way, I think are going to be in good shape. I think they're going to make a strong run at an Eastern Conference this year with Embiid, with Harden, without Ben Simmons. And I think Simmons, in that case, is addition by subtraction. I don't necessarily believe that he would be that with the Nets. But if you think of Ben Simmons, maybe next year being more of an integral part of this Brooklyn Nets team, then maybe that's something that you could lean on to think that the team might be a little bit better. But my Cowboys reference, because two years ago the Cowboys didn't go anywhere because Dak Prescott got hurt. And we understand the value of Dak Prescott. And even Zeke Elliott. Zeke Elliott is not the same player that he was as a rookie. Wasn't the same player he was before he inked that mega deal, which is taking a lot of space up in the salary cap situation of the National Football League's Dallas Cowboys. But those two are the constants that have been there for the last couple of years. And the Cowboys haven't done much of winning. They're blessed because they're part of a very weak division in the NFC East, which I don't think is getting any better. Yes, the Philadelphia Eagles played well last year. The Washington now commanders, you know, that they've lost a couple players off of their defense. And, you know, are they going to believe in Carson Wentz, who really wasn't that good for the Indianapolis Colts last year? In fact, the Colts made the decision after that loss to the Jacksonville Jaguars, which cost them a chance to get to the postseason. They moved on from Carson Wentz. They brought in Matt Ryan. So the Giants, all right, they got a new coach, maybe a new philosophy. Maybe he could get the most out of Daniel Jones. Maybe Tyrod Taylor gives him a little bit of a spark. I don't know. I mean, Saquon Barkley has been hurt. Nobody has really distinguished themselves in a receiver core ever since OBJ left. So if you're the Dallas Cowboys, you're looking at six division games that should probably go your way. And some other games that you're going to be able to win. So the Cowboys winning 10 or 11 games this past season isn't that much of a surprise. The expectation is the Dallas Cowboys, in spite of not having Amari Cooper, in spite of losing Cedric Wilson, in spite of losing a couple offensive linemen, 
are expected to probably win 10, 11 games next season. Now, once again, if you're a national fan of America's team, you're going to look to try to see who is to blame. You're going very far, and I don't hear a lot about Dak Prescott. I don't hear a lot about Zeke Elliott. You know, we heard a lot about how much of, of the fault of the whole thing it was for Jason Garrett. You know, you finally got him out of there. Mike McCarthy's in as a head coach. He's won a Super Bowl before, but very quickly the Cowboys fans and the media are turning on Mike McCarthy. And I wonder, and this is my point that I want to make to compare the Cowboys to the Nets for a second. At one point, do you look at Dak Prescott and question whether he is a winning player? Say the same about Zeke Elliott, who certainly is diminished from the star player he was as a rookie and within his first couple seasons. And then the same thing with the Nets. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, they may be top 20, top 30, the two of them, amongst the greatest basketball players to ever play in the NBA. But at one point, do you throw some blame their way? Maybe a little bit of shade. And in spite of the championships they've won before as players, which by the way, Neither Dak nor Zeke have. When do you start casting a little bit of blame that way? It's easy to blame the coach. Like I said, you could keep running in coaches like it's a Congo line and saying this coach sucks, that coach sucks, everybody that holds the position of a coach sucks. And at some point, you got to hold the star players on a given team accountable. This upcoming season, and assuming this season doesn't end up right for the Brooklyn Nets, is going to be a huge one. The expectation with Kyrie and KD, and listen, they're going to battle some injuries. You know, nobody makes it through a full 80 games in the NBA anymore. It's it's not the way it works. Even the top players miss a couple games. Even the top players take a couple of uh, load maintenance and take a couple games off. But the expectation is that the Brooklyn Nets should be a top team next year, and if for some reason they're not. It'll finally become time to blame two players that have won NBA championships but may not be capable of winning in a city of Brooklyn with the Nets. And I think you got to look at the Dallas Cowboys, a diminished squad, a team that probably will add a receiver, probably will add an offensive lineman to make up for some of the positions that they lost last year. They lost two O-linemen. They lost two receivers. They're... Because of the salary cap situation, they don't have the same team that they had last year. They're going to go out there and make it to the playoffs. At some point, instead of blaming a coach, it might come time to say, oh, you know what, maybe, just maybe, the star players that are on that team are not getting a job done. And it's hard to do from the ownership perspective because the owners are the ones that signed off on the big money and the big contracts. That's why Dak's making what he's making. That's why Zeke's making what he's making. That's why in Brooklyn, KD and Kyrie, very deserved, are making what they're making. And Kyrie's going to come back. He looks like he's going to sign his extension. He's going to be in that for the next series of years. At some point, you got to look at the core and judge that from whether it's working or not. Moving on into the world of baseball. And I'm thinking of some of the starts that are out there. And we'll, you know, you'll get into your whole Colorado Rockies. Are they for real? Well, you know, we get to the end of May. If we get into June and there's still 
playing as well as they are. And then you start thinking of a team like you thought of the San Francisco Giants last year. Like I said, I believe that the Giants of 2021 were an over 500 team. I think you'd be crazy if you expected them to win the 107 games that they won last year. But you're looking at them this year and you're like, you know what? They pitch. They they throw the ball really well. They are managed from whether the, the managing is coming from the front office or the dugout. We could debate that all day. But there is a system in place that's working for the San Francisco Giants. And Farhan Zaidi and Gabe Kapler have that type of relationship. They got the analytics staff in there that's telling them what to do in certain matchups. And this is a team that really has built itself off of what the Los Angeles Dodgers really have done for the past decade or so. They're very analytically inclined, but they use it to their own advantage. A team that is struggling to figure that out in spite of being at the top of the technology chain is the New York Yankees. Now, the Yankees, they'll go out there and win their 90-plus games. They'll win 90, 95, wherever they're at. And what does that mean for the AL East? We know the Blue Jays are going to be good this year. You expect the Rays and the Red Sox to be in the mix. So is it good enough to win the division? It's probably going to be good enough to make the playoffs. I mean, very seldom do you see the Yankees in a position that they're not going to make the playoffs. So I'm looking at the Yankees. And listen, you know that they have their warts. They have their shortcomings. And you, you see it every year. The same team that they've continued to run out there from an offensive standpoint. Hey, we're going to try to get guys on base. We're going to hit some home runs. You look at the Yankees as dynamic of a lineup as there is in baseball. And that's not going to change. You know, Gallo for a full season, Rizzo for a full season. Josh Donaldson is, is another all-star that they've added to their lineup. If you're a Yankee fan, maybe say, hey, there's addition by subtraction without Gary Sanchez there. But then you look at the catching position, and you'll be lucky if you get a dozen home runs total. You'll be lucky if you get uh, the catching tandem to hit the the 190 or 200 that Gary Sanchez hit last year. You obviously have a hole in your lineup, but you've shored up a couple other different positions. Isaiah Kiner-Falifa is a pretty good player. But he's not you know, Carlos Correa. He's not a Trevor Story. So if you're a Yankee fan expecting to get that big-time upgrade at the shortstop position, that wasn't happening, but you got a serviceable player there. But what I want to talk about the Yankees is their interest in generating as much data and using as much data as possible and a question over whether they're using it in the right way. Because they got a pitcher in Garrett Cole that is the highest paid pitcher in baseball history. There's nobody over the course of a long-term contract that has ever earned a bigger and larger and a higher paid contract than Garrett Cole. And listen, he had some success. He was the top pitcher at a time where the Yankees wanted to make that splash. And they went out there and they signed it. Has Garrett Cole necessarily delivered? on the expectations to bring, I don't know, the value of his contract. And and listen, I think I think it's a it's a good discussion to have. And if you're a Yankee fan, you're looking through three starts and the fact that he's got a six thirty-five ERA and that horrible game where he had where all of a sudden he just couldn't find the plate the other day. Kind of weird. 
a pitcher with that command and that dominant of stuff just not being able to find a play, walking five batters and an inning plus, and you know, that, that's it, he's out of the game. And you wonder, for the Yankees who are at the top of the food chain when it comes to data and are technologically advanced, how do they not, or how are they not in a position to fix Garrett Cole and get him to a point where from a mechanic standpoint, he is on point and able to do the things that he could do over the course of the game. If something's off mechanically with Garrett Cole after a couple pitches, something's got to ring down. It's got to get to the Yankees pitching coach. It's got to get to Aaron Boone and say, hey, you know what? This is going on. You know, he's got to fix this. He's got to fix this in game. Not take his lumps, go out there and basically embarrass himself. And once again, you're talking about a pitcher that is going to have his contract thrown in his face forever. $324 million over nine years. And I can't imagine another pitcher in baseball history ever getting a deal that's going to guarantee him that much money. Garrett Cole, for no fault of his own, is going to have to own that. Now, the Yankees were the ones that paid him, but he's got to own it for the contract that he's making. And it's got to be understood or expected at some point he's got to live up to the end of what he is getting paid. Now, he wants to do that. The Yankees want him to do that. But the Yankees are kind of a little bit of, of, of a, they, they're confusing me. They really are. Because they're, they're on top of things when it comes to technology, when it comes to analytics, when it comes to data. And maybe Garrett Cole in his next start all of a sudden gets it back together and becomes the pitcher that he was in his couple seasons with the Houston Astros. And obviously we know about the white elephant in the room and you talk about the increased spin rate that he had with Houston that he lost once spider tack was banned from baseball and he can't use the sticky stuff anymore. And imagine what Garrett Cole would be if he was able to put that substance on a baseball and make it do the things that it did in his two years with the Houston Astros when he was a total of 35 and 10. When his, uh, you know, he pitched to a below one whip. When he pitched to uh, you know, the unbelievable amount of strikeouts, 12, what are you talking about, 13 strikeouts per nine innings, which is down just a tad bit in his time with the New York Yankees. And to me, Garrett Cole should be figured out. This should be something where the Yankees should say, hey, listen, this is how you use the data that we have to be able to release the ball at the point you're releasing the ball, mechanically do the things that you need to to maintain this delivery to be one of the best pitchers in baseball. A Garrett Cole at the top of his game puts the Yankees in a very good position to win that division. You look at the AL East, and a lot of people are loving the Toronto Blue Jays. They've been aggressive. They've been continuing to get better. They obviously have one of the best players in the game, if not the best player in the game, and Vlad Guerrero Jr. And they're expected to win that division. But it's different if Garrett Cole is back to where he was pre-Spider Attack. And you wonder if that one little issue is really holding him back. And if it is, it may be a mental thing. It may be a psychological thing. And I'm not saying, oh, man, he can't pitch in New York. But you, you hear him when he speaks. He doesn't speak with a ton of confidence. He doesn't really bring a lot to the conversation. You don't, say, you don't hear him definitively convince you that things are okay. 
you got that press conference where he was almost in tears talking about, oh, I can't believe they took the sticky stuff away. How am I going to throw a baseball anymore? I'm a little concerned. And I don't think Garrett Cole is going to just fall off the face of the earth and become a, a, a four or five starter. I don't think he's a, as bad of a signing for the Yankees as Carl Pavano or Hideki Arabu or the acquisition of Ed Whitson was for the Yankees. You know, you're looking at different times, but those were all things that you're looking at pitchers that really didn't have any impact on the New York Yankees in a positive way. Garrett Cole was still second place in the Cy Young in the American League last year, struck out 243 batters in 181 innings. And maybe it wasn't the average of 13 that he had in his two years with Houston, but it was still a pretty dominant year. And a year for the most part where he was not allowed to add that extra substance to the baseball to make it spin and move in a way that it did during his time with the Houston Astros. So he, he didn't have that as an advantage. Now he's got to figure it out. And you look at great pitchers, you look at all-time great pitchers, they make adjustments with the times. And Garrett Cole, who is the face of baseball when it comes to starting pitching, because you know what? He's the highest paid. Nobody else is making $324 million over the terms of their guaranteed contract. And like I said, it's just, hey, he struck at the right time. He was the top pitcher when the Yankees needed an ace. Have they necessarily gotten the ace to this point? They've gotten somebody that's pretty close to it. And Yankee fans may go out there and be down on Garrett Cole and say that he hasn't delivered exactly what it is that he was expected to when he joined the New York Yankees. He's been good. He hasn't been great. And I'm wondering, as I close this particular point, why the Yankees haven't been more on top of it. Like I said, from a data standpoint, I'm starting to question whether they're using the data and the information that they have the right way. You want to blame the manager? Well, listen, like I said, you blame the manager of the Yankees. You blame the manager of the Dodgers. You blame the manager of the San Francisco Giants. I think you're, you're, you're kind of just admitting that you are a little out of touch with the way the game and the information has taken over the game. Is Aaron Boone, how many decisions is Aaron Boone actually in charge of making? Aaron Boone is the manager of the Yankees and will be the manager of the Yankees for a little bit of a distant future, at least through this year, barring some major catastrophe in regards to underperformance. Maybe somehow the Yankees missed the playoffs this year. I could see them making a change. But if the Yankees continue to compete, get themselves in, into the playoffs and lose at some point, I would expect Aaron Boone to be back next year. Not because he has distinguished himself as the manager, but because he fits the position that the Yankees are looking to have. They moved on from Joe Girardi for a reason. Joe Girardi is an old school manager. Joe Girardi wants a lot more say in regards to what's going on on the field. He feels that if you hired him, you're using his experience and his knowledge of Major League Baseball and what he could bring to the table as the manager. The Yankees moved on from him and went to Aaron Boone, who has baseball knowledge, has baseball pedigree, but is basically there to follow the instructions that are set forth by the front office. So, yeah, you could blame Aaron Boone if you want. If you don't like Aaron Boone, it's fine. you got the right to do that. Every baseball fan 
has got the right to be down on their favorite team manager if, if you want to. That's your prerogative. That's your choice. But when it comes down to it, you wonder if the Yankees from their front office construction have the right people in place to make sure that the players understand the data that they, they've been able to put together. The Yankees, like I said, and I'll keep saying this, are one of the most technologically advanced teams in the entire sport. And I don't think they're able to use that information to necessarily make them better. Eric Chavez was hired as an assistant hitting coach with the Yankees. One of the reasons that he moved on to the Mets, first of all, it was a promotion. Instead of assistant hitting coach, he became the hitting coach at the Mets. But he also believed that the Yankees were getting too mechanical. In other words, were it, it was so much technology and data that was being thrown in the face of the hitters. And it's something that you heard former Mets hitting coach Chili Davis talk about. Players, they're athletes. Their talent is their ability you know, to hit a baseball, right? Garrett Cole's his ability to throw a baseball. So when you start making them overthink and do certain things and try to lift and do this and do that and study this tape and that tape, it takes the natural talent away from certain ball players. Now, some players are very good with that. Some players are very good with that data and have gotten themselves from a mechanical standpoint to be able to do exactly what the videos tell them to do, exactly what the data says that they should do to maximize their ability and their talent. Now, other players have struggled with that. And sometimes there's an issue with information overload. And I think there's a balance between wanting to have all the now data that exists in the technological age that we live in and balance that with the ability to allow the players to play and use their talents to take advantage of the reason why they're at the major leagues and playing for the squads that they're playing for. They earn their spot to the major leagues not because of their ability to follow instructions, not because of their ability to um, do whatever mechanically is set to lift the ball and and you know release the ball from a mechanical standpoint and do the things that they do. They made it to the major leagues based off of the raw talent. And in some cases, you have to factor in that the data overload may be holding some players back. And a lot of people don't want to hear that. A lot of people are bothered by it. And a lot of people will come out critical and say, well, it's a matter of what I don't know. No, it isn't. I understand everything when it comes to baseball. I understand all the the you know generated stats that show different things. I understand the importance of launch angle and wanting to know, you know, how the ball is coming off the bat at, at, at you know to maximize fly ball potential if you're driving a baseball. You know, the exit velocity, the simply, simple ability to hit a ball hard, that's something in a game that ex- has existed forever. But the more you make it into a science, I don't think you necessarily have scientists that are playing this game. These are athletes. These are talented athletes with gifts and ability to do things that maybe if they thought less, they might be able to do more. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Alwish Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two A's, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We'll be back with you, it looks like, next Thursday.
for another, I'm sorry, Saturday. What are we talking about? It's Thursday today. Saturday's coming up in two days. So we'll have a new edition of the Passball Show, which you can follow on YouTube. You can download the podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music. Uh, follow me on Twitter at John underscore PL. Even though um, haven't been interacting so much on social media lately, we'll be back with you, like I said, Saturday for a new edition of the Passball Show. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side. Brian was on the Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the friggin' World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. Now they come out as the biggest... Major League Baseball manager apologist. It'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park. I was supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside to hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100%, unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing at put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You damn well right better give him a contract extension. You damn well right better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion.